everyone. I want you guys to think about something for a second. If you had to narrow it down to just one thing, what would you say has been the single most important advancement in mountain bikes? Disc brakes are pretty nice, aren't they? Especially if you've been around long enough to remember using shitty cantilever rim brakes. But modern suspension lets long travel bikes pedal crazy well and short travel bikes be crazy capable, so maybe there's an argument for that. But then again, I don't even remember how to ride a bike with tubes. There's no doubt the tubeless tires and modern rubber have made our lives so much better. But while all that stuff has been helpful, it's geometry that's had the most significant and consequential impact on how our bikes perform. This is the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Levy, and episode 78 is all about mountain bike geometry. We're going to get into the time machine and talk about some scary older bikes that we didn't even know were scary at the time, how geometry numbers have changed over the years, and how that translates onto the trail. And we'll look at some modern numbers and maybe talk about if longer and slacker is simply always better. And of course, we're going to explain what all the terms mean. As usual, other Mike is here as well. Hey, Kaz. Kazmer, I've got a question for you. I'm going to make you pick. Rigid bike with crappy tires, rim brakes, 26-inch wheels, those tiny wheels, but kick-ass geometry, or a full suspension bike with disc brakes, 29-inch wheels, but geometry from way back in 1997, and I know you remember what that was like. So if you had to choose one of those to ride for the rest of your life, is a 29er with terrible geometry and a 350 millimeter reach? Or is it the bike with good geo, but nothing else going for it? I'm going with the terrible geometry. Oh, really? Because, <laughs> I didn't yeah. expect you to choose that, actually. <laughs> yeah, because he said it has 29 inch wheels, got full suspension. Like, I don't want to have to ride a bike with crappy tires, rim brakes, and 26 inch wheels forever. Like, that's what I started to ride on. So, like, and I had fun riding back then. So, if I had my old bike from the 90s with yeah. like, modern full suspension 29 inch wheels i'd be fine you can ride around geometry like I, I, the human body is very adaptable i would figure out how to ride that thing honestly i did not expect you to say that <laughs> i don't i don't know if i'm convinced but okay that's fine i mean i had a lot of fun riding in 97 i didn't think about things like head angle and stack and reach and stuff back then i know but now you know that things could be so much better that's the problem you can't forget what you know kaz I, I can. I'm pretty good at forgetting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I've also got a much more recent addition to the Pink Bike team here. Seb Stott is probably best known for his crazy in-depth reviews, as well as being the guy who just proved that idler pulleys are dumb and should be banned forever. I'm mostly joking, but if you haven't seen the article where Seb uses a power meter to test how much inefficiency an idler pulley adds... Give it a read, but we're also going to talk about it in a few minutes as well. Seb, I need some geometry advice from you. I'm five foot ten on a good day. So what is the exact ideal reach number that's absolutely best for me? I'm dying to know, so tell me the number right now. I'd probably say about 480. So I so I like uh, probably about five. Oh, so you do you do have I, a real exact number. <laughs> well, I, I had a look at this question beforehand, so I had time to think about it. So I was like, I like a sort of roughly about 515. That seems to work for me. And you're like 94% of my height. And so 94% of, of 515 is about 480. Is that about what you would ride? <laughs> I, um, 
<laughs> That's not how I would figure it out. But yeah, I'd like a 480. I'm at home on a 480. For sure. I didn't, I honestly okay. didn't expect you to give me an exact science answer like that. I thought you would like, well, no, I don't but, know. Say I mean, something at my expense. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Everybody, it's just, you know, people, on the si- <laughs> people, people should have the same sort of proportion, I reckon. So that seems to make sense to me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Five fifteen sounds long, but I'm not a geometry expert. Seb, how tall are yeah, you? Yeah, but I'm like, I'm a lot taller than you. Uh, 190 tall. centimeters, which is like uh, six foot three. Oh, geez, you're all tall. You are tall. You should have just stopped growing sooner. <laughs> I know. It'd be way more. Start drinking Monster like you. He could have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I've also got James Smirthwaite here. James is going to read the news. But James, if you could think back, do you remember what bike, in hindsight, had the scariest geometry that you've ever ridden? Oh man, um, I mean, I'm tempted to just say the oldest. It's just a specialized rock copper, probably seventy plus degree head tube angle. But um, yeah, so <laughs> that much was maybe ability, everybody twelve, thirteen years ago, something like that. Yeah, you didn't know any better back then. You could also no. heal faster, so it mattered less. Well, like Kaza, I had a, I had a great time, and they say you learn by crashing, yeah. so you know. That helped as well. Yeah, exactly. All right, James. Our first piece of news. I am super excited about this. It, it kind of proves what I've been moaning about for so many years now. Can you tell us about Seb's idler pulley efficiency test? Yeah, sure. I mean, high pivot bikes, they're a big deal at the moment. And with that descending prowess or claim descending prowess, we have to ask, is there an efficiency trade-off to be made? as well um the p train and the shore i'm sure you remember pedaling them up a fire road mike and they were the least efficient in that field test um so to get some numbers on this seb set up a testing rig to try and isolate the amount of energy that's lost from the chain and idler alone if you want to read the methodology it's all up on the website but the bottom line is that uh, a high pivot forbidden dreadnought he was testing um the setup on that cost him about two percent power over a comparable privateer setup and trying to keep as many other things equal as possible. Um, you guys have ridden a lot of these bikes now between you. Um, is that 2% something you can feel? I mean, I don't put out many percents to begin with, so I feel like it is. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I think Kaz cares less than me, though. Kaz, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think you can necessarily feel the percentage, but on a, either bike, you do normally, you can hear. I think it's a hearing thing. It'd be interesting to do like a put some earplugs in a ride because you can hear as you hear the chain going over the idler pulley. Um, so it's kind of like having a back in the day, if you ran like a dual chain guide, I'd say it's that amount of resistance. Um, but I think the the auditory cues are what make you might make you think it's a little less efficient than the actual what's happening. And it's also tricky too, because these bikes that we're seeing tend to be like bigger, burlier bikes. So you're already going to be on a typically heavier bike with heavier wheels and all that. So it's, a, it's a thing, but, um, but yeah, it was cool to see that put to science instead of just in our brains. Seb, how, how long did that test take? Was that a fun test to do? Uh, it wasn't that bad, actually. Uh, a friend of mine had that parameter, uh, sorry, the, the, the trainer. Uh, so I just put that on. I kind of, you know, warmed it up and got the got some numbers pretty quickly. The, the main thing was, like, to keep it as, as fair as possible, I used the same chain and the same crank. So I had to, like, it was a bit kind of faffy mechanically, but it's, it wasn't too bad, really. I, I'm not sure that I would have swapped the cranks and chain. 
taken the time to do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that probably wasn't necessary, but like um, other tests that have been done show that like different chains, different states aware of chains, different chain loops can make quite a difference. So uh, I think swapping the chain probably, because it, it is quite a small difference. So to be able to measure a small difference, you probably need to yeah. take into account things like that. And I kind of interpreted it that as like, yeah. I don't so, think anyone can feel 2% difference in anything. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought oh, it's probably not that big a deal. But And now that you've done the test, Seb, would you own a high pivot bike with an idler? If you're the kind of rider who does, you know, every weekend you're doing a three to five hour big ride and during the week you're pedaling to the top of the mountain all the time. Would you get a bike with an idler pulley? Um, I don't think so. Not not for my only bike. I think, yeah, like a 2% loss in, of efficiency all the time, up every climb, every traverse, that's kind of a big deal. If you, Certainly if you compare it to the the effect of like a little bit more weight on the bike, it's quite a big deal. And then as Casimir said, these bikes generally are heavier as well. So like I think I said in the in the review of the Dreadnought, like if you compare it to something like... A, a nuke-proof mega or a specialized enduro that pedals really well uh, and has and has more travel. It's like I'm not I'm not really sure if the the advantages of the high pivot outweigh it there. But if you're talking about like 180 180 mil plus bikes that are designed to be mostly ridden with a with an uplift, then yeah, totally. For a downhill bike, downhill race yeah, bike, I think okay. it makes a lot of sense. Do you think that two percent number would be much? larger if you were comparing dirty muddy drivetrains like a dirty muddy standard one by setup and a dirty muddy idler pulley bike yeah i think so because there's i think i think the main source of drag is when the chain is bending around the pulley because all the links in the chain have to bend slightly as they go around the pulley wheel so the more uh kind of sticky your chain is the bigger the loss that's going to be. In, in my test, it was about six watts of loss. But, you know, if your chain is... That was with a pretty much perfect chain. If your chain is dry or dirty or just doesn't have as good a lube on it, there's going to be more losses there. So it, I, it was kind of meant to be the best case scenario for idlers. Uh, some people have pointed out that uh, the Dreadnought has a, a lower pulley wheel, but that's pretty much essential for that bike so i decided to test it with the pulley wheel maybe without a pulley wheel it would mm -hmm. be slightly better um although the two uh, the two bikes in your efficiency test the p train and the shore they didn't have one and they were massively slower like nine percent slower than the next lowest bikes so i still don't know what's mm -hmm. causing that big a difference i was gonna go get myself a high pivot bike with an idler cas but i guess i'm out <laughs> never mind <laughs> They don't make gravel bikes with idlers yet, as far as I know, but it's coming. Yeah. Okay, moving on. I don't know if you guys remember the old Yeti 303DH. Um, a guy I used to ride with had one, and I thought it was the coolest, most high-tech thing ever, until he told me he had to clean and lube it before and after every ride. Um, for those listening who aren't familiar, um, this was Yeti's downhill bike. Um, it was a single pivot, but the shock ran along a linear rail to add progressivity. That bike hasn't been seen for about 10 years and neither has that design really. Um, but Martin Sider of Zakeli Bikes, um, based out of the Czech Republic, he's resurrected it for his Dobodelu prototype. 
This is a steel bike. It's got 180 millimeters of travel, 29 inch wheels, and a shock slider hidden away in the down tube. Um, what did you guys make of this one? Oh, that was awesome. I want one. Yeah, same here. I think it's super interesting. I'm a, you guys know I'm a sucker for these things. Just looks cool. And I did like that 303 DH. I had the same thing. I had a buddy with one. I remember he had to put that like lithium lube on it all the time and it wasn't amazing, but I just, the concept in my head made so much sense. I really liked it. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that the guy who made it was pretty open in the article. He's like, oh yeah, no, this isn't, this can't be for production. It's not mass producible or not for consumers. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Too expensive. <laughs> it's too heavy. Like too many moving parts. Like it's just for him. He's just made something cool for himself. And um, yeah, I think that's pretty rad. He also um, finished it with rust. Um, he didn't want to paint it because he started changes to make him want to fiddle with it. And a bit of it went rusty and he decided to just let the whole bike go rusty and, and have it finished like that. What did you guys think of that? Also a big fan. Yeah. It's kind of like that rat rod look. I really like that. It's that patina. Yeah. Do you, Levy, do you remember? I think it was, it was a while ago now, but Seb Kemp used to have a rust bike. Yeah, Seb Kemp that works for uh, works for Santa Cruz now, but I think there was a year he had like a, a rusty dirt jumper that he was that a rusty Chromeg? I think it might have been. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I've always liked the rust finish. I don't know, just something about it. Yeah, I like it's it cool. that it's when it's natural like that. Like car people get wraps and stuff, or like fake patina sometimes put on their mm-hmm. cars to give it that look. Yeah, it's neat. Seb, would would you pick up a, a rusty bike, or are you are you looking for like some high tech carbon fiber thing? I mean, aesthetics aren't really something I think about very much. But yeah, I, I appreciate the look of that bike. I think it would make it uh, less likely to be stolen. And that's got to be a good thing. Ever practical, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to wash it as much. You don't, don't see the dirt on it as well. So pretty good. <laughs> um, next up, Canyon has launched a downcountry version of its Lux cross-country bike called the Lux Trail. Um, the Lux is a, a race-winning XC bike under Matthew van der Poel, under Pauline from Prevost. Um, and it was the, the sort of the benchmark bike in our recent cross-country field test. Um, but it is fairly conservative compared to modern cross-country bikes. So this one is built around a new front triangle. It adds 20 millimeter reach per size and chops two and a half degrees off the head angle. In his first look, Henry said there are kind of two ways of looking at this one. Is it an XC bike? making the jump up to full-blown downcountry or a more comfortable bike that still has its roots in XC but is just a bit more versatile now. What do you guys think? I have things to say. I, I'm not sure it's a new frame. I think they just moved the sizing uh, naming over. Or is it, is no, it a new frame? It's a new front, new front triangle. Front triangle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Slacker, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Also... I do cringe every time I see that down country name on anything that anybody's trying to sell. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're gonna have a whole another down country category in our next field test, so no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's continuing. <laughs> yeah, I don't hate it. I kind of like. I think it works as a thing. Like, how else do you describe those bikes? Yeah, you know, no, I get it. Like, the name makes yeah. sense, but like, I it's just like I was making fun, and now yeah. to like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you didn't say that, Mike, that's why you don't get like super cross country oh, plus or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's if we let you Europeans name it. We're not going to let yeah. that happen. <laughs> KKAS, this bike is definitely on the cross country side of down country, you would say. Like, it's got double lockout still. I think it's still a pretty firm thing. Relatively short travel dropper post. Yeah, it's true. That dropper post, the crazy, I'll go off on this one. So, 
this bike, I agree. It's more on the XC side of things. Like they didn't really go full down country, if that's what you want to call it. They kind of made it like, oh, it's a little more relaxed, but it's, you know, when you look at the numbers and really the length of it, like the slacker head angle, but it got pretty long and they didn't steepen the seat tube angle. So, um, it's a pretty big bike when you're seated. So still almost in the more traditional cross country feel, but then it's down country. It's kind of a confusing bike, but we're going to, we have one in for longer term tests. So we'll kind of see how it goes. But the one thing in the U S you can get it with 150 mil dropper post, which I think is great because you know, it's supposed to go everywhere. It's not your purebred race bike. So a little extra weight is going to be fine in Europe. It just comes with a hundred milliliter dropper post, which is pretty small. Like most of us haven't ridden a bike with only a hundred mil drop in a while. Cause that's, it just doesn't really work for a steep terrain. But in the comments, there's all these people going crazy. Like you guys are idiots. I don't need a dropper post. I just felt like I was reading comments from 10 years ago. Like dropper posts with more than hundred mils of travel are good. That's the end <laughs> yeah. of the story. Like that's how it works. I don't understand. Like I get it. If you're an XC racer, like XC, you can have a rigid post, like save all the grams. But if you're buying a bike to ride more trails to like have a wider variety of terrain, that extra drop is going to be good. And it's not even like 150 mils is pretty normal. Like it's not like they put a 250 on there. I could see people being like, that's too much, but 150 is perfectly acceptable and what the bike should have on it. So everyone else, I don't know, understand. I think maybe to me, I look at that thing and when I mean, we tested the, the older short travel, like the pure XC version of the bike and it was so XC. So th I think maybe people look at it and took it as more of a XC bike and they were, they were thinking maybe, oh, that is enough travel or that is enough drop. I don't know. Yeah, I guess just for me, when you are billing something now as more of like a down country bike, like that's, it should be more into that realm. You know, it's kind of, I just finished reviewing the Scott Spark and that bike has a lot of good traits, but there's other ones where I was like, oh, they could have made it like a little XC to give it that like yeah. short travel trail bike. But yeah, it's an interesting category. But again, people that don't think down country bikes need longer dropper posts, they're silly. Yeah. Hey, do we have that Canyon here for our field test or is it for a yeah. separate test? Oh, it's for the field test? Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, I think nice. it's going to include it in the field test. So there'll be a, yeah, a downcountry category with bikes with less than 120 mils of travel and in this kind of new, new batch of like slightly more aggressive, not XC, but not trail bikes. Yeah. What, why do you think there was a European North American split on that one? Do you think that's kind of a, a kind of a stock issue thing or is there actually a difference in, in the way this bike could be ridden between the two continents? Do you think? No, it's not a stock issue thing. It's kind of more of US marketing product guy wanted that post on there because he knew that most Americans would want to, uh, to have more drop. Basically it is a split just on in riding style and what people want. I think he was able to make that change, um, for the U S market, so, which I good job. Like I'm glad that comes with 150 post in the U S market. Uh, next up, we also had a ride on the new intense tracer, although strangely for a first ride, we didn't actually have that much info on the bike. Jeff Steber simply gave us a new prototype and kind of said, have fun. Uh, so what we do know, this is a carbon frame. It's based on the 275 downhill bike. You might have seen um, Gwyn riding, but adapted for enduro use. As you might expect, that means VPP suspension, although it's now low slung in the frame compared to the previous model. The wheels are mullet. It has an integrated tool pouch in the down tube. Um, what are your thoughts on this one? I don't know. I, I didn't really have a ton of thoughts on it. Like it looks like an intense. It looks like it'll be fun. I did find it strange that they didn't want to share the geometry data. Like Matt was able to just measure it, but it's, I mean, it's a prototype technically, but it was a carbon frame. Like that's going to be what comes out. And I know they, they're not totally sure on the height of the fork that'll end up on it, but you just publish your geo data with what it like a expected fork height and call it good. So did Matt like the bike? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He had a good time. I think he rode Whistler. I think he got to ride with Kavarik on it for a couple of days. So yeah, he enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I'm sure it's some real slow just, riding between the two. Just imagine just, going for a ride with those two guys. <laughs> yeah, just tooling around down the blue trails, I'm sure. <laughs> Casual pace, everybody. <laughs> yeah, chill. So. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see when it does come out, what the numbers actually say, and what comes on it, what it costs, all the normal things you'd want to know about a bike. But again, like supply chain sounds like is the real holdup for this one. All right. And that's the end of the news. Let's go to questions. The first one is from Racer Facer. Kaz, he wants a drop-in revival. For those that don't remember, drop-in was the old TV series where a bunch of freeriders got together on a bus and traveled around BC and other areas uh, and basically just had fun. It was like a Road Fools thing, right, Kaz? Like yeah. mountain bike version of Road Fools. It was great. Yep. Um, Chris Glue, Super T, a whole bunch of Canadian free riders were on there. So Race Facer says, a drop-in revival would be amazing. I would love to see a revival of some urban free ride mixed with some bike park gaps, gaps, slab lines, and large descents. So I have a question for you guys. James, who would you want to see on your drop-in revival tour? And why um, would it be Matt McDuff? <laughs> Oh, I don't want to make you guys feel old, but I do not remember drop-in at all. I don't think I've ever watched it. Um, <laughs> what? Oh, uh, you have homework. Oh, yeah. yeah, you have a lot of homework. <laughs> so much homework to do. Okay, so James, like I said, just picture Road Fools. Picture a bunch of rowdy mountain bikers on a bus. Who would you want to see on there? Um, Phil Atwell, the top of my list, if he's not too busy racing, um, always gets pretty wild. Um, love watching him do sort of bike park gap style edits and um off the bike he's he's pretty wild as well um adolf silver i think would be another good one i think he, he really shreds um how, how many do you want he could bring his electric dirt jump bike <laughs> <laughs> too soon <laughs> yeah we need braga on there yeah braga vestavik and then fabio oh, Remy Whitmer. Mo- uh i picture i mean he does great stuff but i picture him being like like too fancy i want like Dirt bag. Yeah, I want like Remy Morton on there wearing like short shorts and just okay. like grinding on his DH bike. <laughs> yeah. Maybe George Brannigan. Like Remy oh, yeah. Morton, George Brannigan, Braga. Cade Edwards. Cade could go on there too. Yeah. That'd be wild. Just guys that do crazy things. Like this cause like, yeah, like towns should not know what hit them after they leave. They should be like, oh. Maybe we could sell this sell this idea to outside. We could bring drop-in back. <laughs> You can subscribe and then you can watch the new drop in on outside. No, don't say plus, that. Plus. Don't, don't say that. Everybody will get mad. <laughs> All right. Let's go to our next question. This is from Gally and H. He says, Is it just me or does anyone else get the feeling that Levy is the kind of guy who wears a chamois for laps at the Whistler bike park? You know what, Gally? You get Not that feeling because you. you're right. <laughs> Levy wears two. He doubles up on the bib shorts for Whistler. <laughs> Double wraps. <laughs> so many pockets. I don't want to sit on my balls, Kaz. It's painful. Yeah, you wear underwear, Levy. Like, I know, but I still want the chamois because it's comfortable. Hey, hey, Seb, do you wear a chamois when you go riding? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I think if I was going to Whistler, though, I probably wouldn't, to be fair. But I can, I can kind of see the logic. I don't think it's the craziest thing. Sometimes you want to pedal up for a bit. No. Maybe he's making custom ones like D3O pads. <laughs> for my I tank. mean, they existed, right? Yeah. It's pretty tough now, though. <laughs> what about you, James? Do you, do you wear a chamois or is that too yeah. personal? Yeah, I wear a chamois. Yeah. I think we've had this chat before, but um, for like a bike yeah. park, I'd wear like... it keeps coming up. I like it. You know, like the sacks Maybe I like underwear. talking about it. Sort of thing. They're like a halfway house where you get a little, a little pouch. Um, 
they're, they're good fish. You don't want to go full chamois. And Kaz, you, you don't wear chamois at all. You go six, seven hour rides, just like jean shorts, no shirt, no chamois, yeah, no cares. Yeah. I don't wear jean shorts. <laughs> I still haven't got on the jorts program. There's a lot of people hopping on that plan. I'm not into that right now. <laughs> it's too much hard fabric and seams. But yeah, no, I don't wear a chamois though. I wear good underwear and that's what I wear. If Sachs, if you're listening, we could you can send me some more underwear. It's expensive stuff, but so safe to say you've never you don't use chamois cream. No. <laughs> okay, let's just move on. We don't need to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> we're going down a weird hole. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> That's probably enough about what kind of underwear I like to use when I'm on the bike. Let's get to today's discussion about the single most important factor. In determining how your mountain bike will perform, it's geometry. Now, geometry isn't the only piece of the puzzle. Your tired, overworked suspension and worn-out tires also count for a lot. But it's geometry that takes the biggest slice of the what matters on your mountain bike pie chart. Let me put it to you this way. Buying the latest super expensive, super adjustable suspension for your 10-year-old bike won't do much beyond giving you more dials to turn before you flip over the handlebars the next time it gets steep. But if you give that same bike modern geometry numbers, it'll instantly be easier to ride and far more capable, even with your blowing shock and bald-ass minions inflated to 30 PSI. But geometry has changed a lot over the last decade. Numbers that we used to think make complete sense. Kaz, now they're downright scary, and terms that we used to think were important are less so. So with that in mind, let's get into this by starting at the front of the bike with the head angle. Kaz, do you know do you know what I'm talking about? Do I know what a head angle is? Yeah, I heard of that one time. Can you define a head angle for me? It's the angle of the head. Okay. <laughs> you just measure. <laughs> well, no. Kaz, let's be technical. Let's start yes, this off yes. correct here. The yes. head angle is the angle of your fork or the steering axis, if you want to be technically correct, because I know Brian is listening. It's from horizontal and measured towards the back of the bike. It's the first number that most of us look at because in a lot of ways, it it does have a big factor in how your bike steers, but it's far from the only factor. Kaz, I think it's safe to say that some of us, we used to be, and some of us are still are guilty of sort of looking at that head angle number and assuming that a bike handles a certain way, but that's not the case, is it? Can you tell me why that isn't the case? I mean, it's not a bad place to start because if you're, if you go in like broad terms, like a bike with Mm -hmm. a 70 degree head angle, it is going to be quicker steering. It's going to probably feel a little twitchy compared to one with a 62 and a half degree head angle. Like there are, they do make a difference. So the slacker, the head angle overall, it can make some broad generalizations, but the slacker, the head angle, the bike can feel a little slower steering on flatter ground, feel like it takes a little more effort to maneuver. Um, but again, there's other factors that we're going to go into later that, that affect that, but typically you do find slacker head angles on longer travel bikes designed for steeper terrain. And then you find steeper head angles on bikes designed for more moderate terrain, like your cross-country bikes or trail bikes. Yeah, so there's a huge range of numbers out there. Enduro bikes have head angles that go down to like 62 and a half degrees, Kaz, that transition spire that we just reviewed for the field test. You guys will be able to see that review soon. Or cross-country bikes like Trek Super Caliber. It's a relatively new bike. It has a 69 degree head angle. So there's a big range there. Seb, what is it? What actually is it that makes a bike with a slack head angle feel more manageable when it's steep or fast? Can you give me the the technical science reason why it feels better? <laughs> um, well, I can think of two reasons. One is that if your head angle is slacker, then it means that for a given reach, your front axle is further out in front of you. 
So you have more more wheelbase and so the bike is more stable and your weight is further behind that front axle so you're less likely to kind of get tripped up and go over the bars. The other reason is to do with trail that we're going to talk about later. So basically the slack of the head angle, the more trail you have, that's basically the distance between the steering axis about which the front wheel turns when you turn the handlebar. And the distance between that and your contact patch is longer, the slack of the head angle. So yeah, that gives you more trail and... The trail is what helps the front, uh, the steering assembly sort of self-center. So uh, if you imagine if you're in a car and you, you're you going around the corner and then you let go of the steering wheel, it returns to, to dead ahead. In a car, there's other reasons for that. But in a bicycle, the same thing is going on. It's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of called caster. So you can picture like a caster wheel on a shopping cart. It always follows the direction that it's going. The same thing happens on a bike, and the slacker the head angle, the more trail you have, and so the more strong that caster effect is, basically. The, the main place that you'll feel this is actually when you're hitting bumps, because when you hit a bump, the contact patch is all of a sudden moved way forwards to where the bump is, which can be in front of the steering axis. So that's kind of like trying to push a trolley with the, with the wheels in front of the trolley, if if you like, if you like, so that's unstable, and so your steering tries to like mm-hmm. turn into the turn and kind of jackknife, and that can put you over the handlebars. So you you mostly notice this with bumpy terrain, and you mostly notice it with bikes that don't have very much trail to start with. So if if you picture riding like a really old school cross country bike down a steep track with lots of big bumps, like the steering is really twitchy and it's constantly trying to like steer off to one side. Whereas a modern downhill bike just kind of plows through it and the steering isn't so twitchy. We're going to talk more about trail later because it's affected by other things. But yeah, I think the main reason is that this, the head angle makes that trail figure longer, which means your your steering stays stable even in really hectic terrain. I think that's the main thing. You, you brought up a good point there. You mentioned how head angle and trail are tied into each other. And that's really a big theme throughout this podcast is that how all these numbers, well, a lot of these numbers are connected to each other and none of them live in isolation, which is, it makes it even more complicated sometimes. So Seb, what are the disadvantages though of a slacker head angle? What might a rider notice if their bike's head angle is too slack for the terrain they're riding? Less slacker than ideal, we should say. So another thing that we haven't talked about is uh, uh, is kind of steering uh, response. So if you imagine a, a head angle that's so slack, it's it's horizontal, so a zero degree head angle. Um, then if you turn the handlebars to one side, the wheel will kind of pivot about, it will kind of camber to one side or the other, but it won't actually steer the bike because it, it won't be twisting about a vertical axis. So the steering would be so would be really slow, well, very like more than slow because you could turn the handlebars either way and you wouldn't actually steer. Basically, the slacker you go with the head angle, the more you have to turn the handlebars for a given amount of of steering. So basically, it slows the steering response. And that's probably not what you want for kind of darting around tight trees and what have you. Uh the other thing is wheel flop. That's probably what you'll notice straight away like there was a there's a good bit in the Grim Donut video where like you almost like you almost fell off the bike because the the steering wanted to like uh, pull to the side. There's a bunch of those parts, Seb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a reason like 
you have to actually yeah. on at slow speed your your steering with a slack ahead angle is trying to pull away from straight ahead and that's called wheel flop and it's because the weight of your bike is your weight of the rider is pushing down and the further you steer your steering from straight ahead the 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 bike actually drops so in motor, in motorbike circles it's sometimes called headstock drop because the headstock or the head tube actually drops as you turn the bars away from straight ahead so that that's what's causing wheel flop is that drop in height as you as you steer away from straight ahead and you as particularly notice that at slow speeds uh, so that's not ideal all right seb when was the last time so okay so we've seen bikes obviously get slacker lower longer all the things over the last five years or longer seb when was the last time you were on a bike and said i wish the head angle was steeper I, I don't think that's ever happened, to be honest. That's that's not to say that I think bikes need to be slacker than they are. Just curious. Yeah, I've I've not really had that. Have have you? I mean, you've ridden the Grim Donut, and I haven't, so you know what the future's like. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the next version of the Grim Donut will be a little bit steeper. So yeah, technically, I think we we came to the conclusion that it's a bit slack. Kaz, what about you? Have you been on any bikes where you've where you've thought, "Hey, this bike could actually be steeper"? No, I can't say I have. Yeah, I'm kind of the same boat as Seb. Like, I don't, I don't think every bike needs to have a 62 degree head angle. But I also feel like there's, it's yeah, I can't think of any instance where I was like, "Oh, this bike needs to be steeper. It's working too well." Yeah, yeah, Kaz. I know this is, we've talked about this before, cross-country bikes and geometry, and you're of a belief that cross-country bikes are going to get a whole bunch slacker in the coming years, eh? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it, it'll obviously be a slow path for the full XC race bikes. Those are probably going to stay in their ways for a good amount of time. But I think like we're seeing, we talked about downcountry earlier, um, that 66 degree head angle on a 120 mil bike just a couple of years ago, that would have seemed wild. You wouldn't have you know, it's people like you're out to lunch that's never going to work. But then you ride these bikes with 66 degree head angle. That's got sparks, 65, eight head angle. It feels very normal. It doesn't feel super slack. Um, so I, I do think that it's, you know, it just makes sense to kind of trickle that down to these shorter travel bikes numbers that used to just be found on enduro bikes. Like I think some of the, even the older specialized enduros were on that 67 degrees used to be the number yeah. for your slack bike, you know, like 67. Oh, that's really slack. Great. But now it's kind of dropped another degree. Yeah, how far it goes may be interesting to see, but uh, I do think that sixty six, sixty five will become much more normal in the shorter travel bikes. Yeah, do you think people put too much stock into a bike's head angle? Um, I feel like some people would choose to buy or not buy a bike based on the head tube angle, and that's probably not the right way to go about it, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think sometimes people put too much stock in a bike's geometry chart. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> that too and you should you know a lot of times there can be variances especially if you're talking about an aluminum frame you might think you have the a certain head angle and if you actually measure it you know it might be a half degree difference there and to be fair i don't think most people can actually notice a half degree difference in head angle like if you're gonna buy an angle adjust headset like you might as well go a degree or degree and a half because a half degree is fairly minimal it's not going to make you know it shouldn't a half degree is not going to make or break a bike's performance yeah uh, to be fair i've measured bikes with head angles that are like sometimes over a degree i think the most i measured was two degree different to spec so occasionally very occasionally it's, it's quite different to what the job chart says who was two degrees out i think it was no it was it was an orange but it was a, it was a long time ago 
<laughs> I mean, sorry, I'm sure I'm everyone in this sense. conversation is hugely shocked. All the garden gate uh, jokes are coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, that's enough about head angles. Let's go to the other end of the bike. Seat tube angle sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it, James? It's obviously the angle of your seat tube, and that's... Nope, it's definitely not that simple, everybody, because there's actually a difference between what they call your actual seat tube angle and your effective seat tube angle. Let's talk about actual seat angle first, and this is simply the angle of the seat tube when the bike is horizontal, but the seat angle should be talked about in relation to the bottom bracket, otherwise it doesn't mean a whole lot. And that relation is different on many bikes because seat tubes, of course, they don't always start from right over the bottom bracket. Kaz, can you tell me about the effective seat tube angle and why it's much more important than your actual seat tube angle? I would argue that they're both very important and you should look at both because what happens is if you have <laughs> the effective seat angle is basically you're setting the, the seat at a fixed point, you're drawing a line from the head tube back that way and then measuring it's hard to describe measurements via voice but then you're measuring if you drew a line up from the bottom bracket uh, that angle of that intersection is your effective seat tube angle from the seat at a certain height um yeah yeah but with the seat height Kaz, what is the seat height that bike companies measure it at well that's the thing there's a difference sometimes companies are getting better i'll give credit like a handful of companies even more than a handful now are starting to show the seat height they're measuring at but what happens is especially with a slacker seat tube angle as you raise the seat higher, it becomes slacker. Like that effective seat angle gets slacker. So, um, so you try to make it a little simpler to explain. So basically if you have a bike with a steep actual seat tube angle, it doesn't change as much as you raise it up. So picture if you just had a post in the ground and you had a seat tube stuck in it, if it was 90 degrees, you raise it up, it's going to stay 90 degrees the whole time. But if you tip that post to a different angle, as you raise the seat, it's getting further away from your handlebars. So what that can mean is on a bike with a slack, actual seat tube angle taller riders can end up further back closer to the chain the uh, axle of the bike than shorter riders because their seat is higher up so hopefully that makes sense it might be confusing it's hard to explain but hopefully that made sense no i understood that kaz which i feel like means it must have been a good explanation that's way better than i could have done i always tell people that it it's responsible for that over the bottom bracket feel like whether it feels like you're on like a rowing machine with your with your with your feet way in front of you or if you're more over the bottom bracket. Seb, we've seen seat tube angles get way steeper over the last couple years. I mean, that pole stamina is sitting at like almost 79 degrees. It's literally like four or five degrees steeper than they used to be. So Seb, why are seat tube angles getting steeper and what does that mean on the trail? I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think the main one is probably that front centers are getting longer. Uh, reaches reach numbers are getting longer so there's kind of more there's more room between your saddle and the handlebars so you can kind of take advantage of that by making the seat angle steeper and i think the main reason is that they were too slack in the old days like you know they were just in the in the old days it was just wrong and we've kind of learned to make bikes better um and that doesn't happen overnight or in one uh model year cycle it, it has to happen over like several years otherwise people think uh people go crazy about it so i think that's it really bikes are just it's just one of the ways that bikes are getting slowly better can seat angles be too steep what what would it feel like like if you're riding an older bike it's got like a 72 degree seat angle and then you get on a pole 
which is like 78 point something degrees. What does that feel like? And can it be too steep? Like some, some people say that like your, your knee has to be over the pedal spindle or something, but it's like, I kind of looked into that and it, it's completely arbitrary. It doesn't really come from anywhere as far as I can tell. Maybe if you ask someone who's like an expert on biomechanics, they'd tell you something about it. But I mean, I've been riding in like an 80 degree seat angle on that Privateer 161 a fair bit. And I quite like it. Like it takes a bit of getting used to. It feels pretty weird to start with. But once you get up, uh, once you're on a steep climb, it kind of starts to make sense. Um, But, you know, everyone's different. So maybe other people wouldn't get on with it. What, What do you guys think of it? Yeah, I think for me, I've ridden that privateer and that was like, the privateer felt like it was almost too steep for me. I got along with it, especially around where I live. You know, there are a lot of really steep logging road climbs and that's where it feels good. It's on the flats where it was like on the border, but it was definitely rideable. Um, but I think, yeah, that's the one bike that stands out as being kind of teetering on the brink. But I do think there are plenty of other bikes out there that could definitely get steeper because it's um, like you said, once you get used to it, it feels kind of like hopping on a bike with a steeper C2 bang. You're like, oh yeah, this is right at home, especially for steeper climbing. But if you live somewhere with flatter terrain, you might not need the 80 degree seat tube angle. Kaz, I rode a bike once and I was like, holy crap, the seat tube is way too steep. It felt like I was getting pushed into the stem and it also felt like I could get zero power down. To be fair, the bike had 150 millimeter cranks and it was the grim donut. (laughs) Yeah, but did you try to slide your seat back? Uh, I think I think it was in the middle at the time. It was during the efficiency test. I was, and that was the last bike of the efficiency test. So I think I was in full zombie mode. <laughs> yeah. But I remember I just, I couldn't get the power down. And the thing was like 20 seconds slower over three minutes. And hey, I'm not a scientist. I don't know if that's why it was slower, but it felt extremely inefficient. Seb, do you think there's anything to that? Could you see that being the case? In that efficiency test, weren't you measuring your power output with pa- with pedals? You know, if you're putting the same power output down, it should go the same speed up the hill, except for obviously the fact that it's like heavier and it's got um, more pedal bob and stickier tires. So those things will make it less efficient. But like, I guess the question is, does it feel harder to put to generate uh, 300 watts or whatever you're generating with that seat angle? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that suggests that like biomechanics I mean, is not working for you. <laughs> And I think there's, yeah, and with with seat tube angles, a lot of times people forget that seats have rails for a reason. So, yeah. you know, basically what happened, it seems like a couple of years ago, bikes started getting longer front centers and the seat tube angles hadn't really quite steepened up. So you get these long reach bikes and then you end up slamming your seat all the way forward just to kind of make it so that the cockpit feel um, feels okay. But now we're starting to get bikes with steep seat tube angles. You can kind of run them back in the, in the middle of the rails, it gives you more forward and backwards adjustment to really get that seated pedaling position the way you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about the biggest one these days. People really focus on this one, reach. Kaz, can you tell me what reach is? Yeah. So reach is another thing that a newer, newer measurement in the last, I don't know, six years or so, 10 years, I guess when we started, it didn't used to show up on geometry charts before that, but um, before it used to be all about uh, effective top tube length, which is also still important. We'll get to that. But reach, basically, again, if you draw a line up from the center of the bottom bracket, going vertically, and then another line from the head tube going back towards the back of the bike and measure that distance. So that's your reach. So basically, reach only matters when you're standing up because when you're because that's when you notice that length. 
because if you're sitting down, you're going to be behind that reach line. So that's another thing to factor in. Kaz, it sounds like you watched my last explainer on geometry. <laughs> I might have. I don't know. Probably. Yeah. You, yeah. you taught me everything I know, Levy. I forgot. <laughs> you taught me it all. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That's what reaches. And yeah, it's a good way to help you get an idea of what the fit of the bike might feel like while you're descending. When you stand up out of the saddle, kind of gives you an idea how roomy that front end is going to feel. Yeah, which is super important because that's kind of why we buy these bikes for the fun part, you know, for most of us anyway. So that's an important number to pay attention to. Kaz, I'm five foot ten. I remember riding two of the same bikes in different sizes. To be fair, this is many years ago. I had one with a 406 millimeter reach and the other newer, longer bike, the long bike was 428 millimeters. And in this review, I ended up preferring the shorter bike, 406 millimeters of reach. I wrote about how easy it was to move around on slow, tight climbs. Man, I was pretty wrong on that, wasn't I? <laughs> I mean, it probably was easier to move around. Like, it's a yeah, shorter it bike. You're like on a BMX bike. So like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, BMX bike with 29-inch wheels. So, I mean, and that's the thing where we're going to talk about all these numbers. There's no 100% right thing, but the way the trends have been going, they are making bikes just better i would say but yeah like you had fun on both of those bikes even though one nowadays is like smaller than a size small basically yeah yeah and you're 510 if we're talking about reach we have to talk about forward geometry uh and why that longer reach is often combined with a shorter stem seb can you explain that to us yeah so mondraker came out for for geometry in like 20 2014 or something and they, they started off with like 10 millimeter stems, didn't they? So long ago now. <laughs> yeah. And, and the 10 millimeter stem, that didn't stay around. But like the idea was you kind of want the handlebar to be just as far away, which actually was, you know, not very far away by modern standards. But you want the, the wheelbase to be longer. So you have more stability and you have less of that tripping uh, that we talked about earlier. So basically it's harder to go over the bars. But they've kind of, even Mondraker have gone back to like 30 mil stems. And most people have gone back to like 40 or 50 the, kind of, the distance between the bottom bracket and the grips has actually grown quite a lot. So riders are kind of riding a bit more stretched out, a bit more forwards uh, forwards on the bike. But the original idea with forward geometry was actually to keep the riding position the same and just make the wheelbase longer, which definitely had its advantages. I mean, I, I remember the first time I rode a Mondraker, I was like, I, I was really kind of blown away by it. I was like, this this just feels so much more comfortable to ride. Uh, I think we've we've kind of gone towards having similar reaches, but back with sort of 30, 40, 50 mil stems. So actually the, the, the sizing has changed as well as the sort of wheelbase. That sizing is actually pretty tricky. That brings us to Kaz, Dan's recent Noli review. So you can find medium-sized bikes with reach numbers around 440 millimeters or as long as 470 millimeters in brands call them all mediums one company's size isn't the same as another company's size so dan is six foot something he's pretty tall and he rode a medium noli in that review which confused a lot of people because that medium was 470 millimeters long so i guess my point is don't look at just whether the bike is a small medium or large and this is also this kind of underlines why things like specialized s sizing is interesting too yeah, the, the tricky thing happens, though, because if you a lot of people now, they just go off of sizing off of reach, but then you have to look at the seat tube height, which seat, like, there's so many things. It'd be really confusing to be somebody that didn't know all these nerd 
facts and walk into a shop and be like, what size bike do I need? And it's not, not that easy. Back in the day, it used to be just, you measured the seat tube length. Like, oh, you have like an inch of clearance between, behind over your, for your crotch and you're fine. I'm an 18 but, inch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I'll ride a 19, but it's a little different, but, uh, but reach is a great place to start. And then like the seat tube length can sometimes be an issue because some of these bikes have really short seat tubes now. So say it has a long reach and you want to go to like a, a medium, maybe you usually ride a large, like I want to ride a medium. It's gonna be a little more comfy, but then the seat tube is like just minuscule. So you end up with a post that has a ton of posts showing and uh, you know, potentially insertion gets to become an issue. So yeah, lots of weird little factors get in the, in there, but overall reach is a great place to start. So the way that I would describe Mondraker's forward geometry, but also this new longer geometry combined with shorter stems in general, is that it puts the rider farther behind the front axle, which really limits that feeling of, I mean, going over the handlebar on steep terrain and stuff. And that's a big advantage. It gives you a lot more confidence. So would you say that that's a sort of an accurate description of how you might tell somebody of how this forward geometry gives them advantages on the trail? Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say so. Like, um, Mondraker stuck with relatively steep head angles for quite a long time when other people were going slacker. So their super short stems was almost a way to bring the rider back relative to the front axle without making the head angle super slack and getting all those kind of wheel flop things we talked about earlier, which, you know, you know, I think worked quite well. The There's disadvantages to that as well, which is, you know, you have to work a bit harder to get enough weight on the front wheel. So obviously if you're if you're going down something steep and you're hard on the brakes, it's easier to not go over the handlebars, which is great. But if you're on a flat turn and you want to have a, a good amount of weight on your front tire so that you so that it grips well, you have to be a bit more proactive in kind of um, putting pressure on the grips. Um, so there's kind of swings and roundabouts there. But I, I was actually saying to someone that I ride with a lot recently about who's who's uh, got himself quite a new, quite modern bike, and I was like. When was the last time you actually went over the handlebars? Because, you know, I haven't done it for ages. Have you guys? Yesterday, Seb. <laughs> oh, yesterday. Okay, was that... Yesterday. Uh, what bike was that on? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but would you agree that it happens less often than in the old days? Yeah, far less often. Yeah. Yeah, that used to be like the trick. Like you used to know how to like push I mean, your bike progress, between right? your legs and like jump over the front end. Yeah. It was a literal technique, Casimir, wasn't it? It was like, uh, I know how to do switchbacks and I know how to endo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> James, when was the last time you flipped over the handlebars? Yeah, it has been a while, actually. Um, yeah. Oh, knock on wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, how tall are you? I'm 5'11". All right. Do you have a preferred reach number? And if you were to go out to buy a bike, is that how you would shop for your size by reach number? I think it's it's tough for me to have one having not really experienced kind of a big spectrum of reaches, I guess. I think I still would have like an idea, like 480-ish. Um, but that's based on things I've read as opposed to like actually on the trail kind of knowing things. But yeah, I think it's still... Mm-hmm. the with the first number I'd look at for sizing. Seb, would you agree that that's an approach that people should take? Um, I think reach is definitely useful, but um, I think I'd rather look at wheelbase or front center because oh. like like Casimir alluded to earlier, the, the reach number is affected by the stack. If the, if the reach is like the horizontal distance from the bottom bracket to the top of the head tube, the stack is the vertical distance. Some bikes have quite a lot more stack than others. 
So if you like, if you imagine increasing the length of a head tube on a bike, so it has more stack, it's going to have less reach. But on paper, but actually the bikes will feel exactly the same to ride because you'll just run less spacers under the stem of the one with a longer head tube. So it feel it will feel the same to ride, but on paper the one with more stack will have less reach. So this kind of complicates the reach number a little bit. So if you're comparing bikes that have the same stack, then yeah, it makes sense. But because bikes have different stack, it's a bit more complicated than than you might think. Whereas if you just look at the wheelbase, that's like the total room you've got to play with, if you like. It's like the the base of your your pyramid, and that's the that's the um, if your weight is within that wheelbase, then you'll be stable and you won't be going over the front or go, or kind of looping out. So yeah, I think I think the wheelbase is is kind of it's it's unequivocal. It's like that's how much room you've got, and yeah. So I, I think personally, I would I would look more at the wheelbase than reach. Oh, that's interesting. I've never I've never thought about it that way, Cass. What about you? Yeah, I look at wheelbase occasionally. I don't like for sizing not as much, but it definitely is interesting to just compare. Be like, I think for me, off the top of my head, I feel like I've been on a bike with like a thirteen hundred millimeter wheelbase, and that like felt too big. It was like too much, but I'd have to my numbers might be off. But yeah, it's an interesting number and. Kind of especially even related to like chainstay length too, just to seeing like chainstay length and head angle, just seeing how those change the wheelbase. Um, yeah, it's a good overall. Like you could just kind of know the bike is this long; it's going to feel like this because that's how long it is overall to maneuver. Right. So reach is super important number when sizing up a new bike, but it's also a relatively recent addition to our vocabulary. If you go back ten years, you won't find anybody talking about reach. Instead, they're going to be talking about something called effective top tube length, which is Casimir. Kind of related to how we measure effective seat tube angle. It's at a. It's not the actual. It's not your actual top tube length. Like if you took a ruler or tape measure and ran it down the top tube, that number is going to be different than this number. So this one again, you're running a straight line um, from the head tube back towards the seat tube, and then at a uh, a parallel line, and that's going to be your effective seat tube angle. And because it's tied into where your seat tube sits, Kaz, it means that a slacker seat tube angle adds up to a longer effective top tube, but not necessarily, Kaz, a longer reach because reach doesn't have anything to do with the seat angle. Reach can tell you what kind of front end length your bike will feel like when you're standing up, whereas would you say that effective top tube length tells you what it's going to feel like when you're sitting down? Yeah, exactly. And I use this number a lot still, even though... Again, with the measuring, sometimes companies measure differently and it can be a little strange, but I found for me, it's almost more useful to feel how the bike will be when I'm seated pedaling. And that's a number, like, like as long as the bike is long enough, I'm not too fussed with the reach number if it's like, you know, five mils in either direction, but the seated pedaling position, it's a little bit trickier, especially because I don't, these days you're not usually adjusting the fit of the bike with a stem that much. Like in the old days, you just used to stick a stem longer and longer until the bike felt right. But now like I want to run a 40 mil stem on almost all bikes. So um, yeah, that effective top tube length is another number worth looking at just to see. Cause like you said, some bikes with a 480 reach could have like a, and a slack seat angle could just have a giant, yeah, it might feel huge when you're sitting down, but then you stand up and it just feels like all the other bikes. Um, so yeah, another important number. Yeah. And if the effective top tube length is too short when you're sitting down, it's going to feel like your knees are hitting your shifters, just really cramped. All right, that is enough about effective top tube length. Let's talk about a much more recent term, stack. Seb, can you tell me what the heck is stack and also tell me why I should care about it? So stack is just um, 
the difference in height between the bottom bracket and the top of the center of the head tube. So like reach is the horizontal distance between those two points and stack is the vertical distance between those two points. So if, if your bike has more stack, then your handlebars will be higher unless you use less stem spaces to compensate. But also it, it, it changes with reach as we uh, said earlier. So if you increase the stack height of a bike, because the head angle isn't vertical, um, if you if you add like 10 mil to the top of a head tube, the top of the head tube will be about four millimeters further back because of that that angle of the head angle. So if you have a bike with more more stack, it will have less reach, uh, all things being equal. Uh, so you kind of have to take that into account if you're looking just at reach uh, to size up a bike. And mm -hmm. it's worth bearing in mind because 27 and a half inch bikes generally have a, a lower stack than 29ers just because the forks are longer and the wheels are bigger. Uh, so if you're comparing a 27 and a half inch bike to a 29 inch bike, you should be aware that the stack will be quite different. What is a symptom of not having enough stack? Is it as simple as your handlebars are going to feel too low and is too high of stack? Is that just going to feel like your handlebars are too high? You can't get enough weight on the front wheel? Yeah. So if, if you're, I guess we're talking more about like bar height than frame stack. So there's, it's worth differentiating between those, like kind of the frame stack is like, how tall is the top of the head tube relative to the bottom bracket? And obviously that affects your, your handlebar height, mm -hmm. but you can adjust for that with stem spaces and with handlebar rise. If, you're, if your handlebar rise, if your handlebar height is too high, like it's a little bit harder to kind of get on top of the handlebars, which can make it feel um, more difficult to get your weight over the front tire, or especially on flat turns. If your handlebar is too low, you'll maybe struggle to get your weight back enough on steep descents. Uh, so that's kind of the main, the main things. I, I, I wrote a, an article about bar height on Pinkbike, uh, if you're interested. But um, yeah, I think that's the main takeaway. Too low, you'll, you'll struggle on, on steep descents. Too high, you'll struggle on flat turns. Is, um, is stack what gives you that kind of in the bike versus like on the bike feeling? Is that... Is that kind of like the, the sort of the colloquial way of describing it? I think that's a large part of it, yeah. And um, yeah, 29ers, all things being, generally have a lot more stack. And so a lot of people are running, when people went to 29, a lot of people ended up running much higher bar height than they were used to. And that, that would definitely contribute to that in the bike feeling. Seb, are you, are you telling me that stack is different than handlebar height? I think technically, yeah. I think technically frame stack is like frame reach. It's like a, it's a parameter of the frame. And then handlebar height is kind of also depends on what handlebar rise and how many stem spaces you're running. So a person could easily adjust sort of that. They're not technically adjusting the stack of their bike, but they are adjusting how that stack feels by adjusting the height of the handlebar. And it's limited by the length of the head tube and the steer tube length, I imagine. I think so, yeah. So um, I think if you see stack in a geometry chart, that's referring to the uh, the frame measurement, which doesn't take into account the stem spaces or the handlebar rise, just as, as frame reach doesn't yeah. take into account what stem length you're running. Uh, but they're obviously related. Okay, let's talk about offset and trail. Those are two terms that we don't see nearly as much of the other words we've already covered but both are still important, especially the latter. But first, offset. That's how far the fork's axle 
sits ahead or is offset to the steering axis. And it's created by the fork's crown and the dropouts sitting ahead of that steering axis. So it's pretty simple. Offsets have gotten a bit shorter, going from 51 millimeters around a few years ago into the low 40s now, depending on fork and wheel size. Kaz, why have we seen offsets get shorter over the years? Um, Well, when it first started, the the higher offset number was kind of made to help these 29-inch wheel bikes steer faster. At least that was the the theory, just to make it. Um, they were kind of trying to, at the time, they were trying to match 29-inch wheel bike handling to 26-inch wheel bike handling. Like, that was the thing, to make it feel the same, which... That was a mistake. Know, it was weird, yeah, because 29ers used to have sli- sli- steeper head angles than their smaller wheeled counterparts because apparently you wanted it to match. But now that people have been like, if you just look at it as a bike on its own and not compare it to other wheel sizes, it's a much better way to do it. So, um, yeah, so some companies started experimenting with offset. I think Chris Porter was one of the the early ones to do that. And then eventually we saw a transition do it. Um, and other companies now, pretty much everyone across the board has done it, gone to less offset, which the intention is to give a little more stability. Um, so you're increasing... Let's see, when you're going to less offset, then you're increasing the amount of trail while also decreasing the wheelbase. So that's a lot of like little things going on. But overall, it's trying to make the bike not not as long, but still with all the stability there. Um, yeah, that makes can sense go back to me. And, yeah, and the tricky thing is you can go back and forth and it's kind of all part as one package. But if you put a 51 mil offset fork on and then put a 44, the difference is noticeable, but you get used to it so fast. And I think not everybody would even notice it. And I'm not even convinced I could in a fully blind test on the same bike. It's subtle. Like you can tell, but you adapt so quickly. Yeah. You don't, we see actually that question fairly often. People asking if they're going to ruin their bike by putting a fork on with a different offset. Definitely not. Definitely not. I'm sure there's a difference. I'm never going to notice it. I wonder if Seb would notice it. Seb, would you notice it? Uh, I'm I'm similar to Mike. I've done lots of uh, tests recently, back to back in, well, not recently, a while ago. Uh, the different offsets, and yeah, it's really really subtle difference. Uh, you're not going to ruin your bike by having a different offset. I I like to think I might be able to notice in a blind test, but I've never been able to do a blind test on myself. Like, I'd be I'd be surprised if I could notice it. To be fair, although that wasn't true in the old days when yeah. when we had really steep head angles. And so we didn't really have much trail. And so that thing I was talking about earlier where the steering goes twitchy would happen more often. And so I did a test ages ago where I put different offsets on like a bike with like 67 and a half head angle. So it was really steep. And I think there you can notice it because you're getting to the point where the trail, there wasn't enough trail to keep the steering stable in, in all the conditions. Whereas nowadays with like a 64 degree head angle, you've got plenty of trail with either offset, it doesn't really matter. So Seb, why don't you tell us what the heck trail is since you're talking about it? So it's probably best if you can like Google uh, Google image search it and then you'll get it straight away. But uh, basically, if you imagine this, the steering axis is that line that goes through the middle of the steering tube, steerer tube and projects down onto the ground. And because the head angle is quite slack, that angle is in front of the contact patch on the ground, which is why the, the, the wheel sort of trails behind the steering axis and, and keeps it uh, going in a straight line like a shopping cart wheel. But then if you lengthen the offset, you're actually pushing the axle further forwards 
relative to the steering axis. And so you're pushing the contact patch further forwards. And so the contact patch is getting closer to that steering axis, which is reducing the trail. So the point of shorter offsets is to basically move that wheel back, back towards the bottom bracket and away from the steering axis, increases the trail so you have kind of more steering stability, uh, at least most of the time, but decreasing the front center so that the front wheel isn't too far away and too hard to get weight over on those flatter turns. How, how important is trail? Like we don't, we don't talk about it much, but I think it's a pretty important number. Like a, if a bike has the wrong trail number, it's going to have a huge effect on how that bike performs, eh, Kaz? Yeah, again, it's not a number we really like, you don't look at it, but it does make a difference. But that's kind of related to the head angle. It's like the head angle end up ends up being an easier way to kind of estimate what the bike might feel like before hopping on it. But yeah, all these things, there's so many little figures. A lot of it ends up being the designer is the one that's looking at this initially. That's like, oh, if I change this to this, that's going to give me this number. Just trying to make sure things are in like a, a rideable realm. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to talk about trail, I want to bring up the trust forks. Now, I know they didn't really absorb bumps all that well, but they made any bike I put it on handle impressively well. At least the I had the 130 mil travel message. That fork actually increased trail as it went into its travel. And the result that I found was that it made the bike handle really consistently. And it was most noticeable on like steep tight downhill switchbacks where a traditional fork compresses from weight transfer and therefore lessening the trail, steepening the head angle. So Seb, to me, that was a huge advantage on the trail. I felt like I was cornering better than I've ever cornered before. You rode the longer travel version, the 170 millimeter shout, and you didn't, didn't find the same thing. Do you think I'm out to lunch with those impressions? So um, the trust forks have, because they're a linkage fork, they don't have a straight axle path like a telescopic fork. They have a curved axle path and it's quite a tight curve. So it's kind of like a C shape. And so that means that you you start off with like uh, something like a 55 millimeter offset at the start of the travel. But then by the middle of the travel, the the axle path has gone so far back that it's like a 25 mil offset in the middle of the travel. So what that means is that if you're hard on the brakes and the fork is diving and the head angle gets steeper, that would normally give you less trail. But it because the dive, offset... Though, Seb, that's the secret. <laughs> well, that's another thing, which is that the it has anti-dive, which would take a whole other podcast to explain. But, but um, I mean, it does dive, just maybe not as much as a telescopic fork. It does. Um, yeah. 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 So, so, the, so the idea is, you know, you have the, a similar amount of trail when the bike is diving compared to, you know, when you're just riding off the brakes. But the kind of flip side of that is that quite often your fork and shock are compressing together. Uh, that's called heave compression. And then your head angle doesn't change. And with a conventional fork, the offset stays the same. And the head angle stays the same, so the trail stays the same. But with the trust forks, in that situation, the head angle is staying the same, but the offset is changing. So in that situation, your trail is actually changing more than a normal fork. So if you're talking about keeping it consistent, it kind of depends. 
I also wonder, like, if you if you preferred how that fork handled when you were hard on the brakes, I wonder if you would just prefer a shorter offset. Like, if you had a telescopic fork with like a twenty five mil offset, how would would that be better? I don't know. That's interesting, Kaz. You look like you're ready to say something. <laughs> no, no, it's all interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, I all the benefits of the the uh, linkage fork, like I understand them on paper, but in the real world, I find that you know, your, your head angle is steepening as you go through the travel of a fork, but it's really easy to adapt to that. Like, again, we talked about, you don't go out the front of the, you don't go over the handlebars that often anymore. Cause we do have these longer wheelbase bikes. Um, they're slacker already. So even when they get steeper, they're still not steepening to like, but, but the bikes steep. don't need to be that slack. Uh, we don't yeah. have to depend on that really slack geo. We could depend on the, on the consistent or growing trail and more consistent head angle. Also, I would argue, Seb, that that heave compression that you're talking about when the rear of the bike is compressing along with the front, that's not really what's happening when you're coming into like a a steep downhill corner, usually, you know. But how many turns are you just like pushing through a berm and the, the fork and shock should be compressing together? I'd say probably most turns. Like Lots. if you're hard on the brakes, then yeah, you're getting that dive where the fork is compressing only. Um, but really like it would make a lot of sense on a hardtail because that's yeah. the only type of compression you get there. But then who's going to put a $2,000 fork on a hardtail? I don't want to ride a trust fork on a hardtail. That would be shitty. <laughs> 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 All right. Hey, Kaz. Let's fly through some of these remaining turbs here. Could you tell me front center, rear center, and wheelbase? What are those? Pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Wheelbase, super easy. Just measuring from the front axle to the rear axle. That's one number there. Um, front center, that's the measurement from the front axle to the bottom bracket. And then your rear center is from the bottom bracket to the rear axle. Can That's not the chainstay length, though, is it? It's not, but technically it's the same thing. Like because if you measure sometimes depending on how the chainstay is designed, it might you might get a little different measurement. But if you're measuring from the center of the bottom bracket to the center of the uh, rear axle, that's what most people call chainstay length. All right, let's get to bottom bracket height and drop. Seb, can you tell me what those are and why bottom bracket drop is more important than bottom bracket height? Well. Bottom bracket height is just the height of the bottom bracket from the ground, pretty self-explanatory. Bottom bracket drop is measured, the difference in height between the bottom bracket, centre of the bottom bracket and the and the wheel axle. Obviously with a mullet bike it's a bit more confusing, I think probably best measure it from the rear axle. Uh, but yeah, I, I disagree with you that bottom bracket drop is most important. I think bottom bracket height is what matters because it's about how high your center of mass is from the ground. That's really what affects how the bike sort of tips into corners and balances and and uh, how kind of stable it is. So yeah, bottom bracket height is, is, is really what matters for the, how the bike handles, but bottom bracket drop is a good way to compare between bikes because if one bike has like, let's say really big tires on it and you're like, I'm gonna put smaller tires on it, then you want to know what the bottom bracket height will be once you've put your tires on it. And so if you look at the bottom bracket drop, uh, that's a good way to compare between bikes. Um, Because then when you put the same tires on them, they'll have the same bottom bracket height. 
if they've got the same bottom bracket drop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People love to talk about low bottom brackets and how well they corner. But Kaz, can you tell me some disadvantages why you might not want that low of a bottom bracket? Like that's not the answer for everybody, is it? No, I mean, you know, one thing, your your pedal clearance does become an issue when you're climbing or in more traversy terrain. If you have a super low bottom bracket and, you know, if you're running 170, 175 cranks, sometimes you may get more pedal strikes. You know, I know there are, there's a guy in the comments already saying that pedal strikes are always use your error, which they are. They that's are. me. Yeah, that's you. You're in the comments, but you know, you do pedal sometimes going uphill. So bikes with really low bottom brackets, if you're in like really chunky climbs, you might encounter more pedal strikes, or even if you're descending and went for to toss a pedal stroke in, you could clip the ground. So there are limits, but there is something super fun about riding a, a low bottom bracket bike, like the way they do corner and feel kind of like that nice stuck to the ground, hugging the corner sensation that's what you get with a low bottom bracket or at least one with a lot of bottom bracket drop so um yeah there's always pros and cons the gr- the grim donut proved to me that bottom brackets could be far too low far too low <laughs> and bottom bracket height is also something you can adapt to like all these numbers we're talking about it's i'm I've always kind of impressed at least for myself that you can adapt to lots of numbers like you know a taller bottom bracket might feel odd at first but soon it, you just kind of get used to it same with lower so um, you know, it's good to have like ideas of what, what might work, but it's also sometimes surprising just to try something like, oh, that feels totally fine too. All right. That was a lot of geometry talk. I feel like it's fair to wrap this up now with comment gold. The first one is from Schlockens. He says, all mullet bikes are copying the penny farthing. Nothing is new, is it, Kaz? This was underneath our mountain bike copycat podcast. Nothing's a new idea. No. Yeah, I think some people didn't know what penny farthings were in the comments after his. So people, you just Google, this is more homework, Google penny farthing. It's like the original bikes. And that's where the term header came from. Because if you, we're talking about short rear centers, but if you like ran into a curb on a penny farthing, you'll go over the front end so fast. Like you'll just rotate around that giant wheel. The wheel's like, it might be like 48 inches tall and you'll just smash your head on the ground. And what's the reach on a penny farthing? They need to get farther back behind the front axle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a fixed gear too. So oh. I've, I've ridden one before. My boss used to have one at a bike shop I worked at. They're wild to ride. Like they're super weird. But uh, yeah, I that's where the, the wheel. I think it's like forty-eight inches. You have to like kind of. It's almost like a running start to like step on it and then you hop on it. I could be wrong. It might be. I think that seems right, but it's very tall. Did you then, start beside a building so you could hold on? Or no, there's like a little step, almost like a one little peg that sticks out on the part that goes down to the rear wheel. So you put one foot on there and kind of get like a pedal stroke and then hop on and then you ride around. Oh, wow. Yeah. We should get a pink bike penny farthing. Oh, we definitely should get a pink bike penny farthing. I'll submit that expense to outside. We'll see what happens. Yeah. (laughs) Robin, we need this. (laughs) All right. This next comment is from Ricky Bobby 18. This was posted under the, I'm going to murder this pronunciation. So Chelly... Doberdulu rusty bike. You know the rusty downhill bike with the sliding shock? Did Kaz, was that off? Did I get that, Kaz? Seems great. It's Italian yeah. now. <laughs> so Ricky Bobby 18, he says, <clears throat> the year is 2060. Packs of feral golden doodles roam the streets looking for their next prey. Martin slows to a stop on his Ocelli. Doberdulu readjusts the crossbow on his back. Checks the horizon in either direction and slowly pedals off to find shelter for the night. I mean, it is a kind of like a post-apocalyptic looking bike, isn't it? Yeah, if Mad Max had a bike, it'd probably look something like that. Yeah, I would agree. That's a good comment, Ricky Bobby 18. 
All right, we are going to wrap up podcast 78. We hope you learned something about geometry. I did. So next podcast, number 79, we are talking e-bikes. So put your questions down below and maybe we'll answer them. Possibly. Kaz, I really cornered us. Now we have to do an e-bike podcast. I know. It's going to be good. I can't wait. We <laughs> oh, can shit. argue so much. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And as always, leave a rating for us on whatever podcast platform that you use to listen to us. 